turn together in our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel. Let's turn together to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 17. We'll pick up our focus this morning in our text. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 14. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 14. Let's look to God's Word together. Beginning there in verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude... A man came to him, Jesus, a man came to Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire, and he often falls into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Well, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out, the demon? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If You have faith as a mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, this is the word of the Lord. So we look here this morning into God's word in Matthew chapter 17. The title of the message this morning is Helpless and hopeless. Helpless and hopeless. There's times in our life as disciples of Jesus where things seemingly are going well. Uh, It seems as if the sun's a little brighter. It seems as if things are going our way. In fact, we would say things can't be going better. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing great. Why is that? We would say things just really seem to be going good. God is good. Amen? We say, God is good. And we tend to say things like that. God's good, usually in connection to or relation to a particular gift or blessing that we've just experienced or are experiencing. And that is a true statement. Let's not deny that. God is good. How? Well, He was good to me like this or in this way. While that is true, we also need to understand in this reality that God is good, period. God is good all the time. God is good, even when it doesn't notice here, feel like He's good. So there's times in life or ministry where things are going really good. (laughs) And then there's times to where we realize we are bankrupt. We, We realize we go from a mountaintop experience to the valley real quick. We can go one day and things are never better and to literally not just the next day, but literally just hours and we feel like we are in the lowest depths of experience. But really the context of our chapter here, verses 14 down to verse 21, is ministry. So let's confine it to that. There's times as a teacher of God's word or as someone who's discipling others or parents raising children, just the practical realms that God has given to us where there's, there's mountaintop experiences. And really, if we're honest, let's just step back for a second. One thing we recognize is that 
There's a lot of time and effort and labor in ministry and parenting and teaching God's Word and evangelism. But then there are just special moments that are unlike all other moments. They're quality moments. It's like the Lord just breaks through in grace and in power. There's a, there's a breakthrough and we can see it. It's a wonderful moment. And just, just as quickly as those moments are, there's just burden and trial and despondency and really weakness. Well, all of that is what we see here in Matthew chapter 17. We've been looking at the last few weeks, really the, the a mountaintop experience in Matthew chapter 17 verse 1 and the first verses there of the transfiguration of Christ. Where God takes, uh, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into the mountain. And we've been looking at that the last few weeks. Now as we pick up in verse 14, they've seen the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is, He reigns. He is always glorious and good. And they've been given a, 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 a peel back from the curtain to see Jesus and all of His glory. And now they come down off that mountaintop experience. And what they face is helplessness and hopelessness. Last week we saw the shepherding faithfulness and care of Jesus with Peter, James, and John. What we're going to see is that extends now to the rest of the disciples. First of all, note with me the problem in verse 14. Number one, the problem is, is presented to us right off the bat. Verse 14, and when they came down to, from the mountain, and then when they had come to the multitude, a man came to Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic and he suffers severely. How does he suffer? The dad says. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. There's a sense here in the tone of desperateness. There's a scene of of tragedy. There's a sense of sorrow in this man's words as we think about his experience what God has willed for him to go through with his child. This scene is jarring for a number of reasons as we compare it to what we've just seen, that mountaintop experience of the transfiguration of Christ. But what we have here is reality. Just as much as Jesus and his glory is reality, and friends, I want you to know Jesus is glorious and Jesus is reigning right now on his throne, even when it doesn't feel like it. There's times we look around the world today and we say, Jesus, are you, are you really reigning? Well, what's going on? Things feel frail. Things feel fragile. But I want you to know he's, he's reigning in spite of our feelings. And he's reigning. But at the same time, in this Genesis 3 broken world that we live in, and just as much as Jesus is reigning, this world is not our home. He's not reconciled all things to himself and things are not as they will be. This is the tension of, yes, that the kingdom of God is here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God salvifically is here in Christ, in Christ alone. But it doesn't always feel like it. We see a father who comes with a son who's tormented. We move from glory to suffering. We see the full effects of the fall on display in an image bearer's life. In fact, this is a scene of desperation as we look at this problem. Mark chapter 9 gives additional commentary to this. Mark adds this. He says, and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them. And notice here some additional information. And the scribes disputing with the disciples. And then immediately they saw him and all the people were greatly amazed. And running to Jesus, they greeted him. 
And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing or what are you arguing about with the disciples? So what's going on here as we look at this scene? There's a great problem, but this problem is multifaceted. What it seems as if is that Jesus, James, and John, and Peter, who've been isolated, off in the transfiguration account, they're coming down, but the other disciples have been ministering. They're at another place. They're at the bottom of the mountain. That's what the text reveals to us. And it seems as if ministry's been happening, ministry's been taking place. They've been interacting with the people, but yet here comes a case that is difficult for them. So they're able to minister to people, but then they see a father who comes to them with really a hard case. And what we find is that the disciples experience failure. Do you ever experience failures in ministry? Do you ever experience moments where it's just, God, are you there? I thought your word is supposed to work like this. I thought if I'm faithful, we tend to think like this. If I'm faithful, you'll work. If I'm just here, you'll, you'll be here. If, if I just do what I'm supposed to do, you'll bring the power and the glory. And what this text reveals to us is that's not the case. That's the starting place. It's good to be faithful. It's good to be ministering. The disciples here are ministering. But there's moments in ministry where we experience failure. We experience powerlessness. And this is such a case. A father comes to the disciples with a son, and they cannot deliver the son from the torment that he experiences. Mark's, Mark 9's account tells us that the scribes jump on this. And so the scribes come in, and they're like condemning these disciples. They're arguing with the disciples. That's why Jesus says in that account, what are you discussing, asking the scribes, what are you discussing about, what are you arguing with, with the disciples? And we can read from the text that it's as if the scribes who are already hardened in unbelief are saying, here, see, they're not who they say they are. There is cast, uh, condemnation. There is castigation. Out of the scene comes a father to Jesus from the disciples. You can see as this father comes to Jesus, there is a, there's a certain measure of faith. We see in our text he mentions mercy. So again, this problem is it's multifaceted. It's hopeless. The man and his son are hopeless. They're tormented. But it's also a helpless scene because the, the disciples are powerless. The father has a tormented son who's suffering, and he's suffering physically, and he's suffering spiritually. When you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what's clear is in the physical sense, he's suffering from a condition of what the word here is seizures. We could just summarize it as seizures. And I want to make a distinction this morning. It is not to say if you have seizures that you have demonic possession. Let's just make that real clear this morning. We understand what seizures are, what epileptics are, and we understand that. So let's just make sure that's clear. That's not what we're saying this morning. The word here that's used points to the fact of seizures, Moonstruck. It's where we get our root word, luna, lunar, lunatic. The idea here is that this young man is, is tormented physically. Spiritually, there is a demon who is tormenting him. Mark's account gives further insight on this. Mark 9, 17. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. In other words, he's affected his ability to see and to communicate. Luke chapter 9 verse 38 reveals to us just the further aspects of this, this young man's physical suffering and spiritual suffering. Luke 9:38, the father says, look on my son. Notice this, this sense of helplessness, this pleading with Jesus. He says, look on my son. He is my only child. It's enough to have a child who suffers 
There's a weighted pregnancy to this text as we see he's not only my son who's suffering, but he's my only son. What's it saying? My dreams are are being affected here. The heart of a father is is being ripped out here. This is just tragic. Mark 9, 18, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, it says, Mark records. It causes, this demon causes him to foam at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. It affects him in that way. Here in our text, Matthew 17, notice verse 14, it says, He suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. The context here shows us that this father is on nonstop care for his son. It's not just a problem that is there, but this father is providing 24-hour care for his son. We think about the centrality of fire in the first century world, the centrality of water, central to life, fire for warmth and cooking. There's always a fire, right? Fires are being made to feed the household. Water is being brought in from rivers and wells. And what this father says, that this demon is tormenting his son and causing him to be plunged into the water, to be plunged into the fire. So just enter into me. Luke tells us that it causes much scarring and bruising on this, this young boy. The text here is that this is a young boy. That's the sense of, of the text. Imagine with me what he looks like. A scarred young man. No, no, let's just go a step further. If you have children, just think about your son. If you have a son, think about your son. You have a daughter, think about your daughter. Let's just make this right where it is. And if you don't, it is not hard to imagine. Imagine a young child who has scars from burns on his body because a demon has caused him to go into the fire. Imagine a boy who's got burns and bruising and basically the image bearer of God is being destroyed. This is a serious problem. This is a problem where the father gets no rest. He is burdened, he is anxious, he is sapped of strength and energy. And no matter how well he is physically trying to protect his son, there is a level of spiritual torment and suffering from the demon that he cannot touch. That's why he's here. That's why he's come to the disciples. And that's why he's come to Jesus. By the way, as an aside, the sure work of Satan is the destruction of image image bearers that God has created. God tells us in his word in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that God made Adam and Eve in his image. He made them male and female. He made them perfect. He made them just as he wanted them to be. Psalm 139 reminds us and teaches us that our God has made you and I, even in this brokenness, even in this fallen world, he's made us just as we should be. There's a sense of beauty in every single one of us as we manifest that particular glory, that creative glory, that creative expression of how God has made us male and female for his glory. And make no mistake about it, Satan loves to destroy that through drugs, through alcohol, through cuttings, through all types of things. Here we see a demon destroying the image-bearingness of this creature that is made in the image of of God. This is the sure work and sure sign of Satan. Mark chapter 9 verse 25 tells us that this boy was mute and deaf. In fact, Jesus says, dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Verse 26 of Mark 9, then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him and became, and he became as one that was dead. So that many said, well, he is dead. 
Mark 9, 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. He was made whole. So how long has this suffering, this problem been taking place? Well, from the record of Scripture, from childhood. So again, this problem is serious. It's multifaceted. Jesus, will you help? We've come to your disciples, but they are unable to help us. The scribes seeing this, see, we told you they're frauds. We told you they're fakes. In fact, if you look at verse 19, the disciples themselves bear witness to the fact, why, why couldn't we do this? Look, Matthew 17, 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Jesus, why could we not cast it out? Serious. This is, this is the problem. And by the way, while we may not face demon-possessed people, while our children this morning may not be like this young man is, friends, we face problems. And the problems that we face are physical, but they're not always physical. In one sense, you could say it like this, almost every problem is a spiritual problem. While we see in this problem here, it's both a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension, one thing we can say for sure, most of the problems that we face in ministry are spiritual problems that maybe manifest themselves in physical ways. Secondly, not only the problem, notice now with me the pronouncement that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 17. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. This doesn't sound like a faithful shepherd, does it? But it is. Here we see the holy Son of God speaking truth to his disciples. Asking a rhetorical question. Calling out and showing their faithlessness. Reflecting the spirit of the age. In fact, we would say this. This is jarring when we hear Jesus say this. Verse 17. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. So there's a sense here where Jesus is responding to the disciples, but he's also addressing the crowd that is present there that day. It's often that we see in the scriptures, the psalmist, the psalms of lament, the question, how long, O Lord, in suffering and in tribulation? Miss Karen sings a song here that's called, How Long, O Lord, How Long? Describes many of your experiences. We love it. It's true. It speaks to our reality. But here, it's not the creature saying, How long, O Lord? Here, we see the Savior shepherd saying, How long will I deal with your unbelief? Notice here with me in the text. He says, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? And how long shall I bear? So this word here is the faithful patience and the faithful shepherding of Christ towards his disciples. But what he's doing in asking this question is he's showing them that it's not easy. How long shall I bear with you? So this is a rebuking response. This is a rebuking pronouncement. How long? It expresses frustration. It expresses sorrow over the sin of the disciples but also the generation, also the spirit of the age, also the crowd, the scribes who represent, namely, the unbelief and the apostasy there. All right, what is this sin again? It is faithlessness, which is perversion. And church, I just want to remind all of us, faithlessness is not just the sin of the disciples here. I would tell you, I would submit to us here this morning, that of all the sins, the prevailing sins, presumptuous sins that disciples struggle with in sanctification, 
Maybe at the very top is faithlessness. I'm going to say that again. At the very top of that list, more than likely, in our life and ministry experiences, faithlessness. What is faithlessness? Whatever it is, we need to take a moment to recognize it because here our faithful shepherd king says, how long must I bear with your faithlessness? And we wonder, does Jesus, when he looks at my heart, when he looks at my ministry, when he sees our church, when he sees you in your home, when he sees you in your places of service, is Jesus asking us that question this morning? How long must I bear with your faithlessness? Whatever faithlessness is, it is, Jesus says here, perversion. Well, what faithlessness is, is a spiritual problem of the heart. When our hearts are not right spiritually, it reveals itself in action. It reveals itself in the physical actions and operations of the flesh. And sometimes the only way it's revealed is in failure. In in other words, like nothing happens. Now, I want to be careful here. Just because God doesn't answer our prayers doesn't mean we're faithless. But we could also say equally at the same time that many reasons, the reason God doesn't answer our prayers is because our hearts are faithless. I'm going to say that again. Just because God chooses to endure, we have things on our prayer list. We, we ask the Lord for fruit. We say, Lord, would you bless our ministry? Would you bless this gospel effort? This evening, as a church, we're saying, God, would you bless what we do here as a church? Would you give us fruit, tangible evidence of your grace? And if he doesn't quickly show us some immediate evidence of that, it's not to say that he won't. But we could also say, and it's not to equate right away that we went out in faithlessness. But at the same time, I would submit to you and to myself, friends, this text has ripped me up this week. I want you to know that. Your pastor has spent time repenting, just being exposed of faithlessness in my own life. So again, it also is to say that one reason we don't see power while we experience frustration is because in reality, we're just operating in the realm of the flesh. We're just operating going through the motions. You say, LeGrand, that's, that's really harsh. No, it's not. There is a type of ministry that is a flesh-driven ministry, and you don't always know it. In our weakness and our failure, I'll tell you this, if you have a strength that is faithfulness, that's a beautiful thing, by the way. The fact, Proverbs says this, a faithful man who can find. A faithful man, do they exist? Well, yes, they exist. But faithful men, hear me and hear me clear, and that includes all of us, faithful women, faithful children, faithfulness can become an idol. The fact that I'm here, that can become an idol. The fact that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm speaking for us this morning, all of us, the fact that, hey, we're at the plow, we're, we're st- sticking with Jesus, we're faithful to the truth, we're doing what we're supposed to do. If you're not careful, that can become an idol. And you're operating in the spirit of the flesh. And I just want you to know the arm of flesh will fail you, as the song says. It will not help you. In fact, John says this. Jesus says to his disciples in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh, notice here, profits nothing. So it's good to be faithful. It's the starting place. Listen, Paul exhorts Timothy, find faithful men. Timothy, be a faithful man. Find faithful men and teach them also. Give to them what you should give to them. It begins in the home. It begins in every concentric circle of life. Faithfulness. We would all recognize in ministry life and in church and tonight and in Sunday mornings and Sunday school teachers and worship team members and, and those who are involved in different facets. we got to be faithful. But that's not what the whole of this message is about. 
But in our faithfulness, is there a sense that we desperately need Jesus and we desperately need the Holy Spirit to work or all is vain unless, as another song says, unless the Spirit comes down. Zechariah 4 says this, not by power and not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. I'm going to say that again. As we think about life and ministries, we think about the disciples right here, the problem that they're experiencing, the reason there's not victory, the reason that nothing happened here is they're operating in a sense of spiritual atheism, practical atheism. They say one thing, but their hearts are doing another. How long will he deal with this? So this is faithlessness. You say, so what's the answer, Legrand? Well, certainly it's to be faithful. But Lynn, friends, listen, we need the Spirit of God. We need God's Spirit to work. We need His, His Spirit working and blessing our ministry. Paul says this, Romans 7, 18. For I know, Paul says, that in me, the Apostle Paul, that means his giftings, his personality, his preaching, all that is Paul, his use modern-day vernacular, his platform, the, all that is known about Paul, he says this, for I know that in me, that is, he says, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, let's go back to the, the, disciple, the call of discipleship. Let's just kind of remind ourselves as American Christians, we don't always agree with that. In fact, we like ourselves. We think we're pretty great. We like to promote ourselves. But Jesus says, wait a second, no, no, no. If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself Take up your cross, rest and trust in me, and allow my spirit to work in and through you. Do, do we get this, church? Are you, are you tracking with me this morning? Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4, we preach not ourselves. So that's what, that's what we're talking about here. Paul says, I know that in me there is, in my flesh, no good thing. I want us to know this, church, flesh-driven ministries or ministry done in the spirit of the flesh are powerless ministries. Flesh-driven ministries are powerless ministries. Now, here's why this is difficult. We look around the landscape today, and it seems as if things are good. What you see in the American church today, even megachurches, I'm not saying every megachurch is a powerless church. It's not what I'm saying. But I will say this. In this nation that we love, many of our relatives have defended and served, shed their blood for, we have the Freedom to worship the Lord week after week, to serve faithfully in His name day after day. And all we see is what can be done in the power of the, notice here, the flesh. The flesh. You say, well, how do you know that? We'll get to that in a minute. Because one of the things that Jesus points to, which is what is faithlessness, is prayerlessness. So we'll ask ourselves this question and get ahead of myself. Listen, how much of our ministry, don't miss this please, is done without prayer? How much of our discipleship is done without intercessory prayer? It becomes checklist-ism. It becomes to-do-ism. It becomes, I was there. I got the t-shirt. I got the badge. I got the sticker. But here's the problem. It reeks to God. Because there's no dependence upon Him. There's no pleading for His Spirit to work. There's no yielding, surrendering, and sanctifying work of the Spirit. All it is is flesh, and all it is is might. And where Zechariah 4 says, it's not by flesh, and it's not by money or might and glad, glitter and gold. It, listen, it is by my Spirit, says the Lord. Flesh-driven ministry are powerless ministries. 
By the way, Jesus has equipped the disciples to be able to do all that they failed to do here. Let me just remind you, Matthew 10, verse 5, when he sent them out, remember, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when you go, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And they did. They did as he commanded. It was brand new. This is the first time they ever did it. It was unbelievable. So he gave them instruction. He gave them authority. He gave them power to go forth in his name, to act on his behalf as his ambassadors, as his representatives. And what was the result? Luke 10, 17 says this, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So here's the point. They are equipped to do what they are failing to do right here in this text. So you say, LeGrand, if you're beating a dead horse here, let me just remind you, no, we're not. At this age, in this time, Jesus has sent them out as ambassadors, as representatives in his name. So it's in this sin, in Matthew 17, 14, they are exhibiting, mirroring, we could say, the unbelief, the cultural sin of the people. They are reflecting the norm. They're going through the motions. Nobody goes through the motions more than the Pharisees do. Nobody goes to the motions more than the scribes do. The scribes literally copy out God's word. I just want to ask you a question. Have any of you, don't raise your hand, I just want to apply this home. Have any of you ever wrote out the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation? Now, it's going to be very few people here this morning. What the scribes did, I say through Revelation, up until what they had, you get that. Have, have any of you memorized the, the Decalogue, the Pentateuch? Have you ever memorized Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy? They did. The Pharisees did. They knew it by heart. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Listen, they, they put us to shame in those, in those senses, in that regard. But it's just motions. It's empty. It's vain. It's lukewarm. It has no power. It's here that the disciples who've tasted and abide with Christ, who know of his truth and his power, it's here They've kind of defaulted into a lukewarm, powerless ministry that says, go forth in Jesus' name. Oh, you may be healed. Wait a second, you're not healed? All right, you, you be healed. They're still not healed? And it just, they, their, their faithlessness is put on full display. By the way, can I just, can we just say something here? What are the modern day miracle workers, what do they say when someone is not healed? They blame it on someone. Who, who do they blame it on? Oh, let, let's be clear. Rarely do we do this. But this bulls my blood like nothing else. When a miracle is not, does not take place, they blame the person. And they say it like this. They did not have enough faith. Whoa, 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 whoa. Friends, that is wrong. And that is not biblical. And what we see here in this text is the disciples come to Jesus and say, why couldn't we do what you've empowered us to do? It's because they did not have the faith to do it. Now, that's not what the whole of this message is about. We've got to keep moving. Here we see that Jesus responds to them, verse 17, as they reflect the spirit of the age, as they respect the, reflect the spirit of the religious leaders, he says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Here Jesus is grieved by the scene. He certainly is our tender shepherd who looks at this young boy and has no doubt he is the great physician. Listen, he comes 
with a heart of mercy and empathy. It's not to say he is, not, he is definitely moved by this little boy who is experiencing the, the scarring and the torment of this demon. He sees the failure of his discipleship. He sees the unbelief of the people. So what does he do? Does he get mad? Does he throw things? Does he kick things around and say, I'm done with y'all, all of you, I'm done? No. Behold our patient shepherd friends. He exhorts them. And by the way, that's what faithful shepherds do. The faithful shepherds don't just pat on the shoulder and say everything's okay when it's not okay. He exhorts them. He asks a rhetorical question here. And he teaches and models for them that there are times in ministry that they must understand and learn through this lesson because he will not always be with them. In fact, you could say he's digging a well of personal experience for the disciples, and this well is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. This, this lesson will not be wasted. It's a deep well that as they experience life and ministry apart from him after he's ascended, they will look back upon this lesson. Number one, the problem. Number two, the pronouncement that Jesus gives. Number three, the purging. Verse 18, that Jesus performs. Here, behold our Savior and his power on display. Here, Jesus reminds us again that he's not just someone who says he is God, but he is, he is God. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon. Let me just remind us here that in the spirit realm, and there is a spirit realm that is not good and evil, yin and yang, all just kind of waging war against each other. No, there is the God who reigns, whose throne is forever settled, and he reigns and his sovereignty rules over all. And then there's all the created entities that he has created. That includes demons. They're not on the same sphere as God. Listen, they must go with the mention of his word. That's what he does here. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured at that very moment. It's phrased here. It says from that very hour. The meaning of the text is at that point. Here Jesus displays for his disciples and for all of us that he is God. He's not just glorious on the mountaintop experience and his radiant transfiguration and his display of glory, but he is God right here in the valley, in the ugliness, in the putridness of pride and unbelief and the perversity of sin. Here Jesus is glorious, and here he reigns. His power and his authority are seen on many levels. Here we see his divine knowledge. He knows what the problem is. He knows what the scribes are saying. We see his divine knowledge. We see his divine authority. He speaks the word and the demon is cast out. It must obey. There's no arguing here. I'll just remind us in another text, the maniacs of Gadara, they look at Jesus. They're tormenting the image bearers here and these lunatics and these maniacs among the graves and in the caves. But when they see Jesus, they say, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you, have you come to judge us before the time? When they start shrieking back, from the presence of Christ. Because he's not just an earthly man. This is the Son of God. Here we see that divine authority as well. Thirdly, we see his divine power. He makes the boy completely whole. He heals this boy physically, spiritually. We see his divine mercy. He has compassion on the needy. Friends, behold your God. Behold Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke 9.43 says this, and I would encourage you to mark it because this is a verse that's helpful for us. Luke 9, 43 says this, And they, after this miracle, and they were all, notice here, amazed at the majesty of God. 
The people were stunned. That means everyone, the religious leaders, all those present at the day, everyone marveled at all the things Jesus did. When Jesus performs this miracle, what they see is really what the disciples saw in a different way, but it's the glory and it's the majesty of Christ. This is not like, this man is not like we are. They marvel at all the things that Jesus did. What's amazing to me is that no matter how many times Jesus performs this type of miracle, and he did it on times that we can't even count, John says if all the miracles were to be written, the books could not contain or hold them. Supportive language, yes. But listen, the point is, is what Christ did is mind-boggling. The numbers that he reached and touched, absolutely. But no matter how many times he did it, no matter how overwhelming it was, two things are happening. And it's happening even this morning. It happens even today. Every time Jesus performs a miracle like this, people's hearts are being hardened and people's hearts are being softened. People's hearts are saying, he's not the son of God and I don't believe that he's the son of God even there. But then as Luke records, they're stunned. They're amazed. And it's there for a moment. Their consciences know that this, and I'm speaking of the crowds, I'm talking about those who reject Jesus, they are stunned at the majesty and the glory of God. It's there for a moment, and then just as quickly as it's there, what do they do? Their hearts are hardened. And they make excuses for why what they just saw, it could be explained. This is of, this is of Beelzebub. This is, of, this is the same power that, that Satan works. They call the Son of God one of Satan. At the same time that hearts are being stunned and amazed at the majesty of God and then hardened, at the same time, hearts are being softened. I believe, Lord, you are the Son of God. I want to follow you. I want to rest in you. I want to be one of your disciples. Friends, that's, that's happening here this morning. That happens every time God's word is being preached. Hearts are being hardened and hearts are being softened. This is where God's word does not return void. Fourthly, verse 19, we see the perplexity of the disciples. Notice what they ask. When the disciples came to Jesus, the tenor here is that this is a different scene. The scene has changed. The curtain goes down. In fact, Luke, Luke's account, which I, or Mark's account, I'll refer to in just a minute, shows that the scene has changed. They're now in a house, different setting. Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, Jesus, why could we not cast it out? I think they're reflecting on all the glory. And I don't mean in a prideful way. They're just seeing what Jesus did, and they're thinking, why, we could do that. We have done that. Why can't we do that now? Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast the demon out? Mark says this in his account, verse 19. Mark says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, excuse me, here Matthew's account, verse 19, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by, by prayer and fasting. Here the disciples recognize their weakness, and they recognize their failure. Let's credit them with this. They are humbled here. Notice they don't shift the blame. They don't double down and give Jesus excuses. They truly want to know, Lord, what happened? 
how can we fix this? Humility, friends, recognizes failure. Spirit-driven humility comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I failed. Lord, I repent. Christ, would you help me? Christ, would you teach me? Lord, I want to learn from this. Friends, if this spirit is in you, this is a sure sign of God's spirit at work in you. You are a disciple who desires to make much of Jesus. You say, Lord, I want to learn. I, I, I I want to be used by you. Behold the humble spirit of the disciples of Jesus. So they want to learn. They come to him and say, why aren't we able? Verse 20, what does Jesus say? Your unbelief. Your unbelief. So, so, or some translations, your little faith. Other accounts, and Mark and Luke also express that the heart of it is really unbelief or little faith. Now there's five key times in the gospel records, most of them in Matthew, where this language is used. Oh, you, or Jesus will say, oh, you, turning to his disciples, oh, you of little faith. Or you of unbelief. We've seen it in Matthew 6, verse 30. You don't have to turn there, but where Jesus rebukes in his sermon the disciples that follow him, but yet they're anxious. They believe that God is the good God, the Father of the doctrine of the fatherhood of God. Jesus says, When you pray, pray to your Father who is in heaven. A father provides for his children, takes care of his children. But here he says, Pray to that Father and don't be anxious about the basics of life. Matthew 6, 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Matthew 8, 24, we've seen as well. They were anxious about their safety, not only the basics of living, but we saw the miracle of the boat, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered in the storms and the waves, but he was asleep, Jesus. Then his disciples came unto him and woke him, and saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the waves and the sea, a great calm. Text after text, we see five key texts. We're not going to look at all of them where Jesus says, O you of his disciples, O you of unbelief, or you of little faith. So what's the thread? What's the common denominator in these texts? It's this. It's faith that fails because it's operating in the flesh. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, just know this. Our faith and our ministry experiences failure because we operate in the flesh. Our faith fails when there comes points of testing. And when we're operating in the flesh, what we find realized is that there is powerlessness. We've already established that reality because in the flesh dwells no good thing. Whatever the disciples were doing, it could be that they were operating in the Spirit. We don't know this. They were experiencing a measure of God's enablement, His Spirit's power. But when it came to this little boy, it could just be that when they saw this scenario, their hearts began to be lifted up in pride. They moved from faith in God and being used to minister in the name of Yahweh. And they began to think like this, oh, I've done this before. Oh, th- this is going to be easy. This is, we've done this. Remember, remember when we, yeah, yeah, over the, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, I remember that too. This is nothing. If that was that hard, this is going to be easy. They begin to operate in the spirit of the flesh and unbelief. And what they experience is failure. Now, can we just step out for a second and just say, listen, this is not just the disciples. 
What are probably 99.9, hear this from a heart of a shepherd who loves you, but what are 99.9% of your frustrations when you ask God, why God? Why God? Well, listen, the majority of your discipleship experience is done in the flesh. But when the testing comes, it exposes our prayerlessness. It exposes the difference between what we say and what we believe. It experiences, it exposes all the just, the bloviating and all the empty words and all the empty gravitas that's out there. But when it comes where the rubber meets the road and where Jesus says, this kind only comes about by prayer and fasting. That is to say, you can't just waltz in here, be present. You can't just waltz in here and say, mark my name on the list. And you can't just waltz in here and do things like you always do them. Because this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. And it's at that moment that we realize we operate in the flesh far too often, more than we would ever dare to admit or believe. That's what's exposed here. The disciples are good, but why are they all of a sudden not good? It's because they keep their eyes on Jesus, and then their eyes shift from Jesus and look at the problem. Remember Peter getting out of the boat? He steps out in faith, but what changes? He gets his eyes off of Jesus and begins to think, this isn't so hard. I got this. I've been doing this for all of five seconds now. Man, look, look, y'all see this? Look what I can do. And what does he do? He sinks. Why can we go from power to failure faster than you can blink? It's because we move from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit faster than our own hearts would ever admit or ever imagine. We go from saying, God, help to Lord. Look, hey, guys, look what I made. This is kind of good, isn't it? We say, Lord, I have to go preach this message. Or moms, you may be saying, I'm dealing with this obstacle with my child. And you beseech the Lord. You pray for the Lord. And all of a sudden, you start saying, I got this. My methods work. My little sticker chart's doing all the work. And then you realize, oh, snap, the sticker charts are not helping here. Man, we could give tons of illustrations for this. You get it, though. But I trust the Holy Spirit to apply this to you and where you're at. What we see here is that faith fails when it's operating in the flesh. Faith often fails at the very moment of testing because it exposes to us that we are not depending and resting in the Spirit of God to bless and to use us and to work. Number five, look there with me in verse 29, the portrait that Jesus gives. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have, the faith, as a, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Here in Jesus' answer, he gives them a portrait. He gives them a little vignette. It's a, not even a parable. It's just a little example. In fact, this is a favorite text by false teachers to, to t- come and to preach from and to extort this for their own gain. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And we would say, admittedly, just on the surface level, it seems as if Jesus is saying two different things. Is he contradicting himself? Because Jesus says here, he says, if the reason you failed is your unbelief or your little faith, some translations render it. So I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, well, how big is a mustard seed as we've already seen in Matthew's gospel? It's small. So in one sense, it's almost as if he's rebuking them for small faith or little faith, which is really just unbelief. But then he turns to them and says, but if you have faith as a mustard seed, here's what you will be able to do. So what is Jesus saying? What we see here is that Jesus is not pointing to the size of the faith. He brings in the mustard seed. And when you understand what a mustard seed is, you understand what it does. 
A mustard seed doesn't stay a mustard seed. As we've already seen in the parables, when you sow the mustard seed, it begins to be planted in the good soil, and it begins to grow. A mustard seed, which is one of the tiniest of the seeds, turns into a tree or a, a small a, a plant that grows up. And even birds can, as we saw in the parable, can make their nests. The point is, although it starts small, it grows big. The idea is, is it's not about the faith. It's about what the faith is focused on. It's about what the faith is rooted in. And as you get your eyes fixed on Jesus, wherever you are, it may start as a mustard seed, but it turns into a tree. It grows. You're, you're resting in the sovereign God. You're trusting in him. He is your power source. You are persistent in your prayers. You are consistent, and you're saying, God, if you don't bless this, there is no blessing. Lord, I'm here. I'm faithful in prayer and in service and in ministry and wherever the Lord has placed you. But Lord, if you don't come and bless this thing, all is vain unless the Spirit comes down and blesses this. So it's a faith that is faithful. It's not just faith for the sake of faith. And so many times when we talk about our faith, it's just the, the faith, the faith, the faith, the faith. But listen, it's faith that's rooted in him. It's faith that keeps looking at him. It's faith that says looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's about Jesus. That's what we're trying to say. It's a faith that is faithful. This is the portrait that, that Jesus gives. And lastly, verse 21, we see the principle. What does verse 21 say? And Jesus sums it up all together. I want to remind us, with looking at verse 21, it's with eyes that are focused on Jesus. He says, however, this kind does not go out. What kind? This type of situation, this demonic possession, this whole scene where this heart of a father is vexed, by his son, and the bruising, and the vexation, the physical torment, the spiritual torment, all of it. This suffering, Jesus says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Wow, what a verse to conclude on here this morning. Well, in the same way that our faith is not about just the faith, it's, don't, don't, don't look at this and say, okay, I'm going I'm to do more prayer and I'm going to do more fasting. While prayer and fasting is good, it's not about the prayer and fasting. It's what the prayer and fasting and the faith as we've just seen do to us. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And yet, let's not undermine the tension that's here in the text. Yes, God is sovereign. Oh, how good it is to know that God is sovereign this morning. But friends, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God does not negate God's call for me to pursue Him in obedience, in faith, and prayer, and fasting. So as we conclude this morning, I just want to ask us this question. Could it be, could it be, the reason we don't see more tangible evidence or fruit in a difficult situation, it's because we're dealing with it in the realm of the flesh. We're just coming to it with our experience. I've served the Lord for, you insert the blank. My daddy once, insert the blank. We've been to X amount of, insert the blank. We just bring our confidence. We just bring our experience. We bring our, all those things to the table. And friends, we need a, 
an AED shock to the chest, kaboom, to wake us up at just to how frail we are. We need to seek Jesus. We need to stay on our knees and say, God, make me more like Christ and use me. Because if you don't fill me with your spirit, if I do not yield to the spirit and deny my flesh, I'm going to mess this thing up. And regularly, the problems that we have are because we mess this thing up. It's the flesh. We say, Lord, we need your spirit. Jesus says, verse 21, however, disciples, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, do not hear me when I say, so go do more prayer and fasting here this morning. That, that's not the message. The answer is Jesus. Friends, keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And can I just say something? In a gospel-healthy church, which hopefully we are, you can start talking about prayer and fasting, and people aren't threatened by it. It's something we don't see as duty. We see, as John Newton said, we see it as delight. Our duty, when Newton wrote he said, our duty and our delight, though they were opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, our duty and our delight, they joined to part no more. In a gospel-centered, saturated, healthy church that's rooted in grace, that's rooted in Christ, we experience his blessing, we experience his spirit's power and enabling, we delight to pursue him through the spiritual disciplines because it shows us his glory. It's not about the fasting and it's not about the prayer. It's about him and what he delights to do through us as we seek his face and operate not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. Friends, I'm convinced all of our failures are failures in this way of prayer and getting our eyes saying, God, we need you. Let's pray. Father, lest this sermon be hypocritical, I want to say right now, we need you. Holy Spirit of God, we need you. And if you don't come right now, as you've been working through the message, Lord, and apply this text to our hearts, we will leave this room this morning. It's just another Sunday at Grace. And Father, we want to confess to you, we do not want that. Would your Holy Spirit take this message and apply it to the next level of application in our marriages, Lord, in our homes, we desire to be faithful people, faithful disciples. Lord, we desire to bear that fruit of the Spirit that's one of humility. And Lord, when we fail, when there are failures, we want to come to you and say, Lord, would you teach us? We don't want to stay here. We don't want to repeat this. Lord, would you help me to know how I can break through to my neighbor? Lord, help me how to break through with my daughter or my son. Lord, would you help us in our marriage, this problem that we're facing? Why are we not seeing success here why are we not seeing resolution here lord would you humble us and show us our need for the spirit of god Lord, we lift up our needs and our petitions no doubt this morning hearts have been perplexed as they think about their own struggles and their trials there's been scenarios and things that none of us could know about but that people know they're experiencing father as we leave this place would we fix our eyes upon you and be strengthened and led by your spirit would all the glory and praise belong to you and you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.